0: Not long ago, prior to the popularity of South Beach or Whole30 or the Atkins diets, it seems as though bread was seemingly served with every meal at a sit-down restaurant. Diners were rarely asked if they wanted bread. Rather, it was assumed that everyone wanted not only bread, but also the butter. And today, we are often given a choice as to whether or not we want a restaurant's bread. And some of us immediately put our hand up and say, no thank you, before boasting a little bit over our discipline. And others of us have never been known to turn down a croissant, a piece of bread, or a muffin. And still others of us will peek inside the basket and then decide whether what's inside is actually worthy of the calories, let alone the carbohydrates. Ordinary dinner rolls aren't always worth it, but other bread baskets arrive with a heavenly scent accompanying esteem, seducing you in a moment. Do you know this kind of bread? At least one of you does. Sometimes it's the monkey bread, served before the brunch entree arrives, the gooey, bite-sized clusters soaked in a sugary substance that seduce your senses and leave you tempted to cancel your entree order altogether and simply have more bread. And when visiting your city, my husband and I have decided that there's never a need to have eggs for breakfast, but rather we go to the express lane at Essa Bagel in order to get that circle of chewy, plump, hot goodness, before sometimes also picking up chocolate babka that we say is for the office only to find ourselves opening it on the train back to Washington. Not all bread is created equal. In fact, some bread is unforgettable. And bread has been the focus of our lectionary text for the last few weeks as we made our way through the sixth chapter of John's Gospel. It started with Jesus feeding 5,000 people with five barley loaves and two dried fish. And now hungry crowds have continued to follow Jesus, longing for more bread. Many in the crowd are encountering Jesus for the very first time, and others of them have seen these miracles that have been made manifest through Jesus' hands. But no one has the full knowledge yet of Jesus' identity that we now have. People don't understand that he is both fully divine, and fully human. So it's no wonder then that people are a little confused when Jesus stands in front of them and says, I've come down from heaven. Wait a second, isn't this Jesus, Joseph, and Mary's son? It would be like your next-door neighbor's child coming home for the weekend and announcing to you that they had come down from heaven to satisfy your every need doesn't make sense, and yet neither do many of the ways that we seek to fill our hunger. What is it that you use to fill your hunger? And what are you longing for? right now in such a way that you have convinced yourself that you will not be satisfied with anything else in life until you have it. Will Willimon names the depth of our hunger We are bundles of seemingly insatiable need, rushing here and there in a vain attempt to assuage our emptiness. Our culture is a vast supermarket of desire. I wonder how well you know this supermarket. The vast supermarket. Of desire. My friend James Howe says that most of our desires and temptations can be boiled down into three Gs: gold, glory, and guys, or gold, glory, and girls. An insatiable desire. For gold and glory pushes us to work a significant number of hours, sacrificing that health, our health at times and other times, relationships that we hold dear to us. And yet we convince ourselves that we will slow down and be satisfied once we make a certain salary or have the title of principal or partner. An insatiable appetite to feel attractive and wanted pushes us to sometimes date one person after another, never allowing ourselves to settle lest we miss out on something that is better than what we now have. We are bombarded every single day with messages that want to tempt us to believe that we're not good enough, that we're not complete enough, that we don't yet have all that we need. In fact, as I was writing this sermon earlier this week, an email came in from the Honda dealership a place where I had just gone to have my car serviced, and the email subject line was, we want to reimburse you for your last service. I couldn't believe it. I was utterly delighted because I'd been honest with the questionnaire that they'd sent to me after I'd had my car serviced, and I let them know I was a little disappointed that I had to wait an extra two hours longer than what they had promised me. I continued to read the email, and they were describing me as one of their best customers. This is incredible. They're going to give me back all of this money. And then I kept on reading, and what it said was that they would be willing to reimburse me for what I'd paid for my last service if I bought a new car. (laughs) Well, goodness, maybe I need a new car. I started to think to myself... Never mind the fact that my car only has 35,000 miles on it, and I was raised in a family that doesn't take pride in getting a new car every few years, but rather a family that takes pride in trying to figure out how many miles we can get on whatever car we have. But in that moment, all I could think about was how I might need what was being offered to me, The vast supermarket of desire so often sucks us in, like a sample sale in Soho, not because we need something, but because we see this line of people all formed and we think we might miss out if we don't also join it. And then there are those moments when we are lucky enough to feel a deep level of contentment or satisfaction, that time when we signed our first lease on our apartment in the city, finding something that we could actually afford, or when we first fell in love and had someone love us in return, or that moment when we finally got a job after pounding the pavement for how many days or months or weeks, or that time when we heard the words you're pregnant, or you're going to be a grandmother. In those moments, we felt a complete level of satisfaction. Imagine then the satisfaction experienced by the Israelites when God first provided manna. At the start of Exodus 16, we're told that the Israelites are in a place where they actually want to go back to Egypt, because at least in Egypt, they're able to eat their fill of bread. But rather than allowing them to go backwards into bondage, God provides a fine, flaky substance that covers the ground at the dawn of every new day. And God continues to feed the Israelites with enough manna for every single day. And this story of God providing bread enough for each day has been passed down from one generation to another. And not just the telling of the story, but before the Israelites left Egypt, God also told them to put manna into a jar And so this jar has also been passed down from one generation to another, like a priceless piece of heirloom, jewelry, tangible proof of God's practical provision. So it's no wonder then that people want more manna. They think that manna will be enough to make them happy. When Jesus accurately points out how the ancestors who ate manna, well, they still died. And it's true that most of our desires, the stuff on which we spend our time, our energy, and our resources, so much of it is pointless in the whole scheme of things, especially when stacked up against eternity. I am the bread of life, Jesus says. No matter how wonderful manna was in the past, no matter how much bread you have today or stocked up for tomorrow, the second round of bread, the bread from heaven, Jesus himself is even better. Jesus provides security, the security that we so often seek to find in money, He provides this sense of worth that we too often are tempted to believe can be found in our job or our occupation. He provides this level of intimacy calling us all beloved, the reason God's heart beats and sometimes skips a beat when we're tempted to find it in a relationship that's here today and gone tomorrow. He provides grace, an opportunity to start all over again, and then he provides life even though we die. We need not go looking for bread. We don't need to step into a single supermarket. All we need to do is to wait, to wait and to trust that God is yearning for us at this very moment as we watch every morning Believing that the words from the Methodist liturgy are true, new every morning is your love, great God of light. And all day long, all day long, you are working for good in this world. The crowds, those following Jesus, they thought manna in the wilderness or five barley loaves multiplied into enough to feed 5,000, they thought that was enough. They weren't expecting anything more. And those who went at dawn to the tomb where Jesus' body had been placed, they weren't expecting anything else let alone Jesus the risen Christ standing in their very midst the bread of life assuring them and all of us that even though we die yet shall we live and even now the bread of life is drawing us to him Augustine once exclaimed, See how he draws, not by imposing necessity, but by grace. Grace enabling the inner palate of the soul to find its greatest pleasure and delight. My friends, you may have had some extraordinary, unforgettable bread in your life, the stuff made with flour and yeast, but also success and accolades, gold and glory. But not all bread is created equal. Some of it will take the edge off. And others of it will soak up whatever it is that's remaining. And still other bread will satisfy you today while leaving you longing for so much more tomorrow. but the bread the greatest pleasure and delight, the bread of life has come and is coming again. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never, ever be hungry or thirsty again. So when you're offered this bread, and all of us are free, without price. Never, never turn it down, but receive it and delight in it. And allow it to remind you, no matter what, that there is always, always more to come. Thanks be to God. Amen.